We're happy to have George Quillen with us today again. George, if you'll come, I'd like to pray with you. Um, I think uh, I think uh, the music and what we've talked about is going to tie right into what you have to say for us this morning. So I think it's great the way the Spirit works in these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that George can be here today. And we just pray now your blessing on our time. And as George opens the word, we just I just pray that you would give him the words to speak. The thoughts and the clarity would come to mind. And just pray your blessing on what he has to say today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation, I greet you in the name of Christ. I trust you've been prayerfully preparing for this Lord's Day. I would call your attention this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. But as you're turning there, I will begin by reading Colossians 3. Beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word, or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. It warms the heart to hear of the great emphasis put on the memorization of God's word. This morning we'll be reading in Acts chapter 2 what I've loosely titled The Centrality of the Local Church. In preparation for that, though, I'll back up in our text. It's mid-story, but we'll begin in verse 37. Peter's been preaching here at what we recall as Pentecost, and his message has had a distinct effect on the people. And we read then in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together 
and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. The observant Christian will notice a distinct decline in both church membership and involvement today. A 2021 study concluded that U.S. church membership was 73 percent when Gallup first measured it in 1937 and remained near 70 percent for the next six six decades before beginning a steady decline around the turn of the 21st century. And in 2020, 47 percent belong to a church's membership. That is a distinct decline. Now, that's the what. The why is another story rife with speculation. It can be any number of reasons. But I submit to you at least this much. Get authentic biblical conversions and you'll get meaningful biblical memberships. Right? But while there are a whole host of possible reasons for declining numbers of professing believers joining a local congregation and committing to it, we can at least say this. Ours is a day of, in the best sense of the term, Rampant ignorance as to the biblical witness regarding meaningful churchmanship. Scripture is not silent, nor is it unclear. But before we can reasonably discuss the purpose and the function of the local church, we must have first things first. Who are the proper candidates for membership? And that's where our text comes in today. And so our text this morning will be verses 41 through 47. We begin 41. They devoted themselves. Sorry. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. Now, that we free churchmen are convinced that baptism is suitable only for believers goes all the way back to the beginning of the 16th century in a Baptist movement among the Swiss brethren in Zurich. And according to William Estep, may well be the key to interpreting the Anabaptist views of discipleship in the church. For we understand from Scripture that one receives the word, is baptized and added to the church. This is, of course, true for all free churchmen. Luke's record of the order of events here is deliberate and it's instructive. Peter's hearers heard, believed and so were saved, were baptized and added to the Jerusalem church. To change this order is to introduce phenomena unknown to Scripture. So the way is plain. We hear the word, we receive it, believe it, we are converted. We then follow in the first act of obedience to Christ, as we see in Matthew 28, and we submit to water baptism and are added to the church. One must receive the preached word. This word receive in verse 41 is a Greek word meaning to receive kindly, heartily. To welcome, to embrace. It's not a mere intellectual assent. Rather, we own it. The Spirit has begun that work and we now understand it. We want it. We own it. Frankly, an infant cannot do this. And even with young children, great care must be taken in presenting the gospel. In any case, verse 41 records in obedience to Jesus' command in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Once you have these disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then once you have made disciples and you've baptized them, teaching them. 
to observe all that I have commanded you. So the church's ministry of discipleship is distinct and important. We must be careful. It's very common that we we gladly receive someone into our fellowship. They've confessed Christ. They have submitted to water baptism and we welcome them warmly. Welcome, brother. Hey, have I got a class for you to teach? We must be careful. We must be careful. I remember an old film in which uh, the line was for the student to teach the teachers presumptuous and rude. We must be careful that we instruct these new disciples, that we teach them to equip them for the proper teaching. Discipleship many is important, and it isn't just a class. It isn't just a class. And by command, we can also draw from Jesus' example in Mark 1, 9 and 10. Mark 1, 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Trinitarian God involved in salvation and witnessed through baptism. So believers are the fit candidates for membership. We see verse 42, the fruit of this conversion. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and then 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is relating vividly how God brings about conversion, and that is through what, what appears to us the foolishness of preaching. Yet we understand from Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How are they to believe in whom they have not heard, and how are they to hear unless someone preaches? How are they to preach unless they are sent? It is by means of preaching God has ordained his primary means of bringing people to saving faith in Christ. The preaching ministry in the church is essential for us, regardless of the way men perceive it. It's necessary for us to be instructed and to feast in the green pastures of his word. Who but a Christian would not only submit to an extended exposition of the Bible, but actually crave it, savor it. Yet this is precisely the case with those who, in the words of Psalm 34, 8, have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Those of us who have come to see and have tasted that the Lord God is good, we desire a word from him. And while it is good and right that we do read the word in our own private and family devotions, it is Exampled in scripture that we are to gather together each Lord's Day and hear his word explained, expounded and applied. This verse, verse 42, is both descriptive and prescriptive. 
and what the early church did and how we're to follow their example. Notice what they did. They gathered around the apostles teaching. They devoted to meeting together, which is the fellowship. The breaking of bread. This is a bit of a loaded phrase for we find historically that the early church had both the Lord's Supper, but also a fellowship meal, such as we call it today. At that time, it was called an agape meal. Typically, when the one happened, the other did as well. And so when we read a verse about the breaking of bread, it's difficult to know which one there is in view. But we typically assume both happened. They observed times of prayer. These are all elements of Christian church life, which we should emulate and which we saw in Colossians. That's why I read that. It's another example of early church or first century church life. You'll recall where it said, 316, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Examples of some of the things that the early church did. Beaky said the church ought to be a fellowship of mutual care and a community of prayer. Converse and pray with fellow believers whose godly walk you admire. You see, our fellowship is not simply gathering together to talk about football. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can't exactly call a chicken dinner and football fellowship. That's a get together and we like it just fine. But that's not strictly speaking biblical fellowship. We fellowship around a common savior, around the substance of his life giving word. And that's where we find both commonality with other brothers with whom we might not be otherwise acquainted, but where we also build one each other up in the Lord through the sufficiency of his scripture. But notice verse 43, something different, whereas some of this we share today, there are other elements in the early church that we do not share today. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, here's an aspect that we're not called to emulate today, and there's a distinct reason why. We read that the church was in awe due to the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. We notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, an important example of that. Matthew 10, 1. Speaking of Christ, it says he called to them his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then he names uh, Matthew names those apostles. In that text, we see an example of Jesus uniquely qualifying and empowering his apostles with supernatural abilities For a specific time and a specific purpose, which is this, to validate and confirm their message about Jesus himself. These men weren't just traveling salesmen peddling a message. They were messenger boys of the Lord Christ. And to give evidence that they were, in fact, the called messengers that they were, Christ empowered them for a very specific season to do some very specific things, and all 
to qualify, to affirm, to confirm, to validate that the message they were bringing really was of Christ, who really is who he said he was. With the passing of the apostles, so also passed this God-given supernatural ability to perform healings, for example. Now, of course, God still heals, but it isn't by our hands. It's by God himself. To be an apostle, one had to have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. None of us were. And of his resurrection and personally commissioned by Christ. This is no longer possible or necessary. Once the Bible was completed, the canon closed, their ministry was no longer necessary. Much as the temple was rendered unnecessary with the coming of Christ. We understand we are the temple now. This is the meeting house. This is not the church. This is just a beautiful facility set aside for the purpose of Sunday morning corporate worship gatherings. But you are the church. Temples of the living God. We read of this in Corinthians. That physical temple, that structure, was no longer necessary once Christ came. We see evidences of this in Hebrews. But notice verses 44 and 45. This new community of faith. What were they doing? You recall, they were at what we think of as Pentecost. Grand celebration. And there were very many people coming there from out of town. <clears throat> you ever had that experience where you go traveling and realize you've left your toothbrush at home? What do you do? You find a Walmart. You get the things you need. We can do that now. We have that luxury now. We can find little mom and pop shop to get what we need when we're out of town. They didn't have this. So all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some have come away from this text misunderstanding the point, and they, they, see a, they see an example, a precedent for some form of a type of communism where we just sell everything, pool the resources, let's buy 80 acres, and we all live on it. Well, that may not necessarily be a wrong-headed thing to do, but it certainly isn't prescribed here. We see later in Acts that people still owned property. You recall Ananias and Sapphira? They were not obligated to sell their property. They chose to do that. And their great crime was not that they sold it. Their crime wasn't even that they had a little bit of money left for themselves. It was the misrepresentation of it. They essentially lied to God about it. That was their crimes. They could have kept their property. And Peter says as much. He said, wasn't that yours to do with as you wish? People still own property. And we even see in 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen, for example, that homes were where some of the early churches met. 1 Corinthians sixteen nine gives an example of this. Sixteen nineteen, I'm sorry. The churches of Asia, Paul writes, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Being a Christian didn't mean you sold every last item that you had. There's a reason for what they're doing here. Rather, this this example right here in verses 44 and 45, example, dramatic generosity as a demonstration of the work of the spirit in these early believers lives. 
living for others sake rather than themselves. They sold off some things so that they could meet the needs of these out of towners, these other. These other people who had great need, we see in Acts four thirty two, for example. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were practicing what we see Paul describing in Philippians 2, 3, where he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. Notice he's not saying don't consider your own interest. He's just saying don't just look only at that. But also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This one another ministry is central to the faith, as we also see. Again, there in in Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves. This is what we see is central to our faith. It's having the mind of Christ that Paul calls us to this being of one mind and it. Tangibly practices loving our neighbor as ourself, as commanded in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. You recall is the second great commandment. The first one being to love the Lord our God with our whole being. And the natural fruit of that then is to love another as ourself. This selling of property, the sharing of goods, though. These were necessary because of the large numbers of people visiting from outside the area. How do we as a local church live out this reality? We don't necessarily have a phenomenon like they had there. How do we live this out? It's it's one thing for us to contribute monies to a benevolent ministry. and That's good and right. And I know that this fellowship does that to your credit. How might we locally, though, in person, attend to such a need? Or could that be manifested in the relief sale? Praise his name to minister to another through the selling of goods so that others might be blessed. Brian Vickers says this taken together with fellowship around the apostles teaching common meals and prayer. The practice of free sharing is evidence of salvation through the power of the spirit. By God's grace, we are what we are. God, having given to us his all freely, lavishly, without holding back. Has made us his own. We who had no claim to his glories. He's been gracious to us, giving us salvation. We didn't deserve And he's been merciful to us who believe withholding condemnation that we do deserve. And so we, having been forgiven of all that, have the happy privilege and responsibility then to be gracious in our dealings towards others. One one time likened it this way to me, saying, no one ever has does or will offend you to the degree that your sin daily offends your maker. It's hard to hold a grudge knowing that my sin before God 
is of greater stench than any offense anybody would commit against me. If he can forgive me of everything and make me his own when I was an enemy of Christ, how am I to treat those who aren't my enemies? Notice verse 46, 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It can be difficult getting churchmen to commit to meeting once a week, and here they were doing it every day. You ever hear anybody say, hey, let's just start meeting every day of the week? Are you a religious nut or what? Meet every day? It's hard enough to get somebody to commit to a Wednesday night. That's where the really spiritual are, right? What are the rest of us doing? But these people were meeting. Did they know something we don't? Possibly. These early believers met day by day. What might they have known? Well, these, verse, these verses are, are manifesting the unity that they, that they enjoyed through the Lord also. As referred to earlier, Paul speaks to this more fully in Philippians 2, 1 through 7. Notice that. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then we'll notice Paul also continues this in Romans 12. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. This is a tall order, but this is what we're called to. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Do it like you mean it. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Or another rendering of that is give yourselves to humble tasks. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lest we think that's another isolated text, consider Peter's remarks in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4 verses 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Is this your testimony? Like the Jerusalem church, have you heard the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? Have you received this good news? Trusted in Jesus alone as your only way of reconciliation with his father, confessed and repented of sins? Such people are those fit for this task that the word has just been calling us to. Those who know this varied grace of God gladly exercise it. Have you obeyed Jesus through water baptism and joined his church? It's one thing to faithfully attend. And that's good and right. It's another thing to commit to a local fellowship. To invest yourself, your time, your resources And your spiritual gifting for the blessing of the brothers. In such a church which Christ loves and gave his life for. Do you fellowship with his people regularly? Not just on Sunday morning, but through the week. We are a covenant community. It's the way the New Testament describes us. A community of faith. Invested in one another's lives. Praying for one another, specifically, deliberately. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, we read, Behold, now is the day of salvation. So whether, whether to receive it or to live it, now is the day of salvation. For Christ's sake. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father and Master. You have blessed us lavishly with your grace. You have been kind to us. And we are grateful, Father, that you do not treat us fairly, but graciously and mercifully. And we thank you. Father, work your grace in us that we would we would magnify the name of Christ in quite every way conceivable to us in what we say and what we do. And how we gather for worship and how we sing and how we pray and how we read and how we live the way we treat our families and our friends and 
those we don't know. We would live blamelessly before unbelievers. That the way that we live before you and others, Father, would be a sweet aroma to you. That you would smile on us in what you see and hear. Dear Lord, warm our affections for you, for Christ, for your spirit. That we would not resist. But that so far as it rests with us, we would live peacefully among our neighbors. That we would live as free people, free people in Christ, free to live in the manner honoring to you, free to love one another as you have loved us, free to gather together and to worship and exalt your supreme, holy, majestic name. Forgive us, Father, for every wayward way within us, for every sinful thought. In action, indeed, for every offense we may have caused to another, bring it to our mind that we may confess it, repent of it, and to fall on our face in submission before Christ, to be reconciled with one another as you have reconciled us to yourself. Father, I pray for this congregation that you would hold them tightly, that you would warm them by your nearness, minister to them by your word and spirit, that they would be encouraged, built up in Christ, that you would grant them wisdom and discernment as they would seek to live faithfully before you. Deliver to them, Father, the right man to lead them in the ways of Christ. Keep them faithful to you, steadfast, a blinding, bright beacon in the community of reconciliation found in Christ, even through the way that we live. We are grateful, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Send us for your sake and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.